We're going to be walking through Exodus 2. I'm just going to work through verses 1 through 15 today. Uh, if you remember last week, were you here last week? Uh, raise your hand if you are here last week. Okay, you guys heard um, Pastor Steve open up Exodus chapter 1. Uh, I heard it too at a desk in South Metro Atlanta in McDonough, Georgia. And so I was here with you. Uh, on Wednesday night, I was here watching what you had on Sunday night, and it was uh, a blessing. So I just want to, I want you to think back to, he, he talked about the promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, do you remember? And, and Joseph, too, was in on that promise. He, he, there, was, there was a blessing coming to Israel, right? And then something happened. Uh, God gave Israel the best land in all of Egypt through, through Joseph, you remember? They said, here's the best stuff, and there's all this favor by the government, and how many generations did it take to be forgotten? Two generations. So they had favor, and, and then two generations, a change of leadership, and boom, slavery. And they thought if we could put them in slavery, then we'll, we'll suppress them, and they'll quit growing, expanding, but that's not what happened. It actually did the opposite. They, they grew even more. It grew in affluence, they grew in everything. And so something, they said, we gotta figure something else out. You remember, they took, they said to the midwives, you go, take the child and, uh, and kill him at birth. And uh, appreciate the words he said on, on abortion, a kind of a current issue in our culture today. Um, but uh, I, I wrote down, I didn't mention it this morning, he said something, said in a godless society, uh, slavery is not enough. Immorality of slavery is not enough. They need to do something more, so murder seems like a, a right choice to an immoral uh, uh, society. So that didn't work. So what did they do? Told them just, if you see a boy, a, a young baby boy, throw him in the Nile River. Just throw him in the Nile River. Not even when they're born. I'm saying just throw him in the Nile River, and we pick up Exodus chapter two. Um, kind of a bleak season uh, but the whole story of Exodus, you see this promise. And, and not only the promises of God, you see it taking place. You see the faithfulness of God to, to meet what he's promised for, uh, for Israel. So if you have your Bible, we're going to look at Exodus chapter 2. I'll have it on the screen too. And my man up in the, the booth is helping me out too because I zone out and forget to click. But, uh, but you guys hang with me. I want to look kind of at the tent of the Father. And you'll see what I'm talking about in a minute. The intent of the Father, because there's all this blessing, there's all these things, it's a, cr a crazy story of provision, and all this blessing, so why? The intent of the Father. So let's, let's start in verse 1 of, uh, of Exodus chapter 2. Verse 1 there, it says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. So a Levi marrying a Levite. And by the way, we find out later it's Amram and Jochebed, right? Amram, Jochebed. Jochebed is going to come up quite often here in a little bit. Uh, verse 2, the woman conceived and bore a son. A son. How many kids at that point did she have? She had already had two kids. Why did, what's so special? It didn't even mention them. Why was so special? Something special about that third born. Miriam had been maybe a teenage, early teenage years, or maybe a little bit younger than that. Aaron was three years older, so he's a three-year-old. 
And the decree came, and they still had a baby. There's a little bit of faith in that, trusting that God's going to take care of you. And, uh, and so, I keep going. Uh, it says, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. All right, he's no ordinary child. I, I got this. We're going to jump around a little bit today. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus 2, but I'll keep referring to Acts 7 and Hebrews 11. Acts 7, Hebrews 11, because there's great parallels that give more insight to the story. And so it says at one point in the Word of God, says uh, in Acts 7, at this time Moses was born and he was beautiful, not just in mom and dad's sight, he was beautiful in God's sight. There's something different about this kid. And uh, you ever had that one kid that's the best looking kid in your family, right? Clearly I'm not that guy. I had, uh, I hope Brandy's not agreeing right now, but uh, um, she hasn't said anything, so I'm going to take her silence. No, uh, all that say, like, this kid was very special, not just in the eyes of mom and dad. They saw there's something different about this kid, and it says in God's sight, he saw him as beautiful. So going on, verse 3 says, and when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket and made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. That word for basket, I'm gonna say straight up, I'm no Greek Hebrew scholar, but when you drop into the Strongs and you see that there's 27, 28 times that basket is mentioned, it's the same word for ark, teva. It's the same word, and there's only two storylines that refer to the basket as an ark. Two, two storylines that this word is being used in all of the Old Testament. It's an ark made from Noah, right? Noah's ark, and then there's another one, and that's the one that Jochebed made. And both of them had three things in common. It's an ark. It's, it, they were covered in what? Pitch, pitch. And, and the last thing is they were both created in a, as a result of judgment on mankind, you remember the judgment of God on, on Noah's day on all of mankind. And so God drew, he, he told Adam exactly how to make this ark. Never been such thing as a ark. And they weren't expecting to see any rain. They'd never seen rain, but judgment was coming. They said, build an ark, cover it in pitch, and you'll be saved through, through the judgment, right? Same thing here. God didn't say it. And we'll talk about it a little bit. God didn't say it, but he, she built an ark, just a little ark, covered it in pitch, and he was saved in the midst of that judgment on mankind. It was, it was Egypt judging the Jews, but he was saved through that judgment. Uh, we'll go on. It, man, it's a, just a crazy story. I need to pause, just say this. If this story took place here, 2019 in Canova, West Virginia... I almost said Georgia. It slipped right out of my mouth. If that took place right here, we wouldn't be zoning out right now. And we'd be at the edge of our seats. This is the most spectacular thing I've ever heard. Because, but we grew up with this story, so we kind of glaze over about an incredibly powerful story that God has is just miraculously providing for his people. And he goes on. Look at, look at verse 4. Verse 4. Oh, hey. 
Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's skip. It says, verse four, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and took it. In verse six, when she opened it, she saw a child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Let me pause. What should she have done there? By law, she should have taken that baby out of the ark and thrown her into the river, thrown him into the river. That's what, that was, she's in the palace. She knows what the rule is, right? She should have taken the baby and threw it. But what happened? She heard the cry of a baby. And every mother in this room understands that. When you hear a baby crying across the room, every mom's like, somebody gonna get that baby something they need? You know, you feel your heart is drawn to a child to meet their needs. She opened this thing up and God used that in the heart of somebody that doesn't know him. God used that to, to turn her heart towards this child and, and she received him into her, uh, her home as her own. Verse seven says, then his sister said to the Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Now this is crazy, we'll come back. Verse nine, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Listen, in the story and plan of God, a woman that was walking by faith, you have to go back. She's scared to death because she wasn't scared. She, she responded by faith. She had no fear in the government and she had this child, raised him to three, and she placed her full trust and God to take care and set it in a, in a river. God would take care of it. But I, you wonder if she really thought ever that she'd be paid to nurse her child. You think about how crazy that is. That God not only spared her son, but she's getting paid to do what she was doing before. And believe me, and I'll, I won't say much about it, it's, it's hard work nursing, just so you know. We'll stop right there. Um, we had four kids, and, and just the blessing, though, of being provided for in that way. So um, I just, I want to throw this in, too. Just, this is mere conjecture. Some of you guys like going here just as a, a thought process. Isn't it ironic that she used an ark covered with pitch? You think about the only storyline for her to remember how God preserved his people was Noah's ark. And there was water judgment. Like there was major water judgment. And she's standing there at a time, doesn't show any indication about her thought process or whatever. It just, it shows in the word of God. I believe I have it next. It shows in the word of God that by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. That wasn't, that wasn't Moses' faith. He was three months old. There was, a, there was a step of faith from mom and dad, Amram and Jechabed. They, they stepped out by faith and they trusted. What if, and I'm just saying what if, what if the one other time in her life at that point, 
God was sparing his people from water judgment by an ark, so she built an ark. What if it needed to be covered with pitch for a seal, for a seal that would, that thing wouldn't sink? And, and what if in the midst of it, she was trusting God as she lowered that ark into the water and placed her boy in, she was trusting God in a, in a similar way, some, in some ways that Noah had to. And I, I say all that, uh, it's a, it's, it seems like a terrifying thing to trust God. I didn't mention this in the early service. I don't know if it, somebody needed to hear this. It seems terrifying to trust God. You know, I, when I was young, I'm, I see a lot of students in this room. I was scared to death to trust God because what if I trust God and he sends me to Africa? Or what if I trust God and he takes one of my kids? It, a lot of people struggle to trust God because it's fearful. They, they were not afraid of the king's edict. They were trusting God and it spared them from the, the a worse thing happening. And it's ironic how we, it's hard for us to trust a good father. It's hard for us to just let go and trust God. I believe it's a demonstration of complete faith that she was able to place her son in the hands of God. And, uh, and for whatever reason, uh, Lord laid that on my heart this morning to just share in this service. Um, and so verse 10, it turns a corner. It says, when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she became her son, or the Pharaoh's daughter's son. And listen, she, not mom, but the Pharaoh's daughter, said she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Okay? Uh, you, are, you know, when you become the, the child of Pharaoh's daughter, you've got the good life. She, he had everything. He had possession. He had a level of authority. You become a child of Pharaoh's daughter, you are like one of the most important people in the world, right? He, he had the best education in the world. Not only was his life spared at, at three months old, but he opened this door for all this opportunity, and it's all because mom trusted, mom and dad trusted God with Moses, but there's, there's gotta be something more. Did God do all that for mom and dad? You know, I want the blessing of God on my, my children. But what if the blessing of God on my children has nothing to do with me? I want, I want the blessing of God on my brothers. I have two brothers. They both live in Dayton, Ohio area. I want the blessing of God. But when God blesses my brothers, is that for me? And, and I'll just say too, we all want to be blessed in ways like this. Moses had just unbelievable blessings, but why did God pour out all the blessing? There's got to be a greater reason. I started, I started digging around. Um, uh, Exodus 2, verse 24, we won't get to it in this service, but I want to mention that God heard their groaning. God, God saw his people suffering. He heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what was the covenant? Do you remember? It's, it's that you'll be multiplied. We mentioned last week, it, it'll be multiplied and you'll have a land that will be your land, the, the promised land. But it's more than that. Listen, 
You see who he's saying this to? Abram. Generations before, he said, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. This was years before. It says, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Listen, God, God was remembering his promise, and Moses was part of the solution for his promise to happen. The blessing, why in the world would you pick Moses? You're talking about almost a million people, maybe not a million at that point, but almost a million people. And out of the million people, why Moses? Why was there so much favor of all the boys that were thrown into the Nile River, lost their life during that time of judgment? Why was Moses spared? And I see this verse, says in Numbers 12, verse 3, says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. He was the meekest man. You know, meek indicates, you remember when God was calling him, he said, why would you choose me? I'm a nobody. I stutter. I'm a nobody. And the crazy thing is, God, God picks nobodies. First Corinthians, I'm not saying it's my life verse, but I'm reminded of it all the time, that God picks the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. He picks the nobodies. He picks the weak things of this world. Uh, and, and the crazy thing is, all of that comes to the end at the end of verse or chapter one is to say this, that no flesh can glory in his presence. Why did God pick the weakest man, the meekest man? So that God would be glorified, right? And so uh, that's, that's powerful thoughts to me, the word of God showing. So I wanna turn a page, look at... Uh, we're going to look at verse 11, and I want to talk about the insanity of faith, and it's going to make sense a little bit. Um, keep in mind, in all of the world, he probably had the best setup in life, greatest setup, like possessions, education, best education that you can have, and, uh, and it comes to verse 11, it says this, it says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked to their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Well, who are his people? Who, I mean, his mom and dad are Levites, right? Who are his people, though? Like, even at one point in Midian, a couple of verses later, when he's sitting by the well, they come and see him, and listen, it says an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. They were referring to Moses. They looked at him and saw, that's an Egyptian, but his heart identified with the people of God. And it's gonna make sense in a minute, uh, it, maybe. Uh, everybody know this guy? Uh, LeBron James, you have to say it. I'm around students, you have to say LeBron James. Um, but LeBron James, uh, I'm a Steph Curry guy, I don't, you know. But LeBron James, he's done okay in life, right? Do you know, <laughs> he was quoted as saying, I think it was after his first championship, he said, I'm LeBron James, I'm from Akron, Ohio, I'm from the inner city, I'm not even supposed to be here, right? We all know he grew up in Akron. Uh, if you know much about his life, he was, 
His father, I think even stepfather, was an ex-con. At one point during the course of three years, he lived in 12 different houses, just bounced around wherever they could live, just make ends meet. He had a tough life, very difficult. He came out, he's done pretty good in basketball. Um, That's probably a a wise career choice for him. Um, Right now, just... It's not about, we're not going to be pre- preaching about LeBron James, but right now the man is worth $1 billion. Think about that. $1 billion. So he came out of nothing. He came out of nothing, and right now he's living as one of the, probably one of the most wealthy athletes, maybe even people in the world, worth $1 billion. Crazy thing. Do you know what? You know where most of his funding, money, goes to for, for causes that he donates to? I think he gave $200 million last year to help inner city kids in where? Akron. Those are his people. And so he's, his heart is turned towards his people to help them and bring them along. I believe there's something, it's, it's not the same, but there's something there that we all understand in today's life. Those are my people. Um, you guys see a West Virginia license plate when you go to Myrtle Beach. Everybody goes to Myrtle Beach. You see a West Virginia plate, you say, those are my people right there, right? There's something about that, where, where you came from or who your family is. And so here he says this, but look at what it says. It takes a little farther in Hebrews 11. It says, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Like, that's a pretty good thing. If you're called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, that's a good thing, right? You're you're the man. But he he didn't want to be called that. He said, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He chose to be afflicted with God's people. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. There's something more than this fleeting, uh, this fleeting treasure. And, and let, me just, let me just note this, and I'm gonna come back to the, that idea of fleeting. Let me say this. We look at LeBron James and think, he donated $200 million. What an unbelievable thing. Listen, what Moses did was 20,000 times, I didn't mention this in the early service, 20,000 times more significant. It would be equivalent to LeBron James getting rid of his $1 billion getting rid of his mansions and his cars, throwing it all away, and more than that, choosing to go live in the oppression of the people that he came out of. That's what Moses did. He didn't just throw $200 million like LeBron did. He actually chose to live where they live and suffer the affliction they live, and he did it for a purpose. Now, listen, this fleeting, I I keep coming back to fleeting. Um, uh, How many of you guys have had the perfect steak. Um, this, was, this is gonna be a hard picture here in a minute. Just, it wasn't as hard in the early service, but this is gonna be a little bit hard. Um, I'm a steak person, obviously, by my physical feature. But, uh, but by the way, I'll just say the best steak in the world, as far as I'm concerned, some people might not agree, but there's a place called McGuire's at Destin, Florida. And they, they smoke their steaks. It can't get any better than that, right? And so anyway, uh, I'll get that picture off real quick. But listen, 
if you've had the best steak in the world, it's there and it's gone. And now we're sitting here talking about what you ate, but it's not there anymore. It's that idea of fleeting. Like it was a wonderful thing when I enjoyed it, but now it's gone. And I wish it was here right now, right? So listen, what about, let me explain that car. Some of you guys are like, what in the world is that car up there for? Listen, that is a 1990 Ford Taurus wagon. In 1990, when I was like, I was, let me think, 1990, I was eight. The cool kids at school, their mom and dad drove that. And uh, that's a pretty sharp car, right? Okay, listen, uh, it's, it wasn't really a cool car, but to an eight-year-old, like that was pretty cool to have that car because you could sit in the back backwards and it didn't look like the old ones that have the wood paneling, right? So as an eight-year-old, I thought that's cool. Listen, you couldn't find that car in a junkyard to get one car part off. That's just, that's 30 years ago, right? Fleeting. Suntan. Uh, <laughs> so listen, listen. Uh, everybody wants to go to beach, to the beach, right? To, to get a suntan to look good. Like you, pictures always look better when you got a little bit of tan, right? And, and so people go there and they'll spend like... They, they want that, that momentary thing of people looking at you saying you look good. So they'll spend like weeks at the beach. No, I can't go inside and talk right now. I got to work on my tan, work on my tan. What happens four or five days later? You're white as a ghost, right? It's fleeting. It was there and now it's gone. And, and I'm starting to see this pattern. There's another thing. Um, abs, I used to have abs. This is me 20 years ago in high school. That's the same human being. Just want to say that out loud. Um, a lot has changed. And I, I want to blame like 20 pounds on college, 20 pounds on marriage, and the rest of it on kids. Uh, but, but really, it has probably more to do with a fork than it does about working out. But, uh, but truth be told, like, I was in shape. I was doing, I love life, like going all the time and, and I'm realizing the older I get, the harder it is to keep it off. And then more than that, man, time is running out. And the things that we pursue day in and day out, how much of it is fleeting? How much of it is just a momentary fleeting pleasure of this world that, that here it says, he says, he chose to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting momentary pleasures of sin. I'm not saying any of that stuff that I mentioned is necessarily sin, but I am saying that if you're pursuing things in this world to satisfy you right now, that won't matter in 100 years from now, it's fleeting. It's useless. I challenge our students down there. Sorry, I'm skipping past the steak picture again. I challenge our students down in uh, Georgia all the time that in 100 years, and look around the room, 100 years, if God tarries, 100 years from right now, there's not a single person in this room that's gonna be alive. I want you to think about it. Your grandkids probably aren't gonna be alive. My kids. What matters 100 years from now? Am I chasing after the things of this world that are fleeting, or am I chasing after, like it says in the word, the reward, the thing that lasts? Uh, I want to skip over um, 
we'll skip back over to uh, Exodus chapter two and we're gonna finish off right here. The impulse of the flesh. Listen, God had a crazy plan. His, his plan for provision was magnificent. Like you, you and I sitting down writing a story, we could never match the story that God planned. But listen, it was not gonna come by Moses. It was gonna come by God. It says, uh, if you have your Bible again, Exodus chapter two, verse 12, it says there, it says, when he saw his, his, his people being afflicted, he said, he looked this way and he looked that way. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. You, you all know what a kid looks like when he's guilty, when he's about to do something wrong or he just did something wrong. It's that guilty look. He had that look. He was looking around. In verse 13, when he went on out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling. They're fighting. They're quarreling. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And when Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. He thought, surely this thing is known. You know what? When your kids are doing something they know is wrong, we say one thing. There's something that we quote Moses is saying from Numbers, I believe. We say, surely your sin is gonna find you out. You can't hide it. Moses said that, but he knew it personally. He thought he was sneaking around getting it done, but he did it, he did it, uh, his sin found him out. And, and so again, I'm jumping to Acts 7. It gives crazy insight in this. It says, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. By whose hand? It's not going to come by Moses. I mentioned this in the early service. Um, your walk with Christ is not dependent on Steve, Pastor Steve, or any of the pastors or shepherds or deacons. Uh, you, personally, need to know that God is the one that provides you victory in life. Um, there may be some people in a room like this that have made mistakes that have crippled you since you made that mistake. And you, maybe you had well in your heart that you, you really want to do something well. And this verse, by the way, this next verse, is a, it's, not, it's one that stung me a number of times. It says this, For I know that nothing good, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but the ability to carry it out, I have not. I, I don't have the ability, but not the ability to carry it out. Listen, what it's saying here, listen, you've made a mistake. You might had every desire in your heart to do what's right, and you made a mistake that puts you literally in this story here when he killed it, and I didn't go back and read verse 15. He killed the man, he rent ran for his life. Pharaoh was chasing him and he ran straight to Midian and he ran to a people that were nomadic and he's going in a terrain that's very desert and he's sitting right by a well. A failure. You wonder, he spent 40 years, by the way, in the wilderness and you'll learn maybe that a little more next week too, but um, 40 years he spent there and I see a man sitting at a well, broken, 
They made mistakes that they don't feel like they can be forgiven of some of, sometimes, or they feel like they messed it up. And ironically, they, Moses had in his heart, he wanted to do right. He wanted to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this over. I'm going to give them salvation. But he didn't understand that it's not by your flesh that you can overcome anything. It's only by God and his plan and his promises. And, and when we try to take our, into our own hands, we miss, we miss the real victory. And sometimes God allows us to be sitting lonely at a well in the middle of the wilderness. Uh, you think about this, the whole picture of Moses in just, just these couple of verses. He's, he's a privileged man. Like he had everything. And, and more than that, he carried a burden for his people. Then when he walked after the flesh and took for himself the plan of God on his behalf, tried to do what only God can do, he ends up being lonely at a well. Uh, you guys know what this is? Bible scholar or English scholars here. That's obviously a semicolon. Uh, and maybe you guys have heard things about semicolons, but when you make a statement that's true and there's a semicolon, you can't just take that one statement that's true and, and write that, like that's all it is. You have to see a semicolon and know there's, the story's not done. The whole story's not there. And their idea, I, I, I think about this, it's sitting at the well as a failure. And you could have said at that moment, Moses is a murderer. And you probably, in our minds, we, he's a murderer, so put a period after that. That's what he is the rest of his life. But when the story of God takes place, God, God takes him through the wilderness and uses him, there's a semicolon after this point of failure. And I, I just encourage you, if you are alive in this room, your heart is still beating, you're breathing, you're here this morning, and your heart is tuned to the truth of God's word, you have probably fallen into a deep place. I don't know if you're struggling to forgive yourself, even though Christ has forgiven you, or you're just a person that's lonely, you're, you're not engaged in the kingdom of God. I encourage you that if you're still alive, God is still writing a story that, that he can forgive and he can lead you through a point of restoration. It might be a painful, broken season, but through the blood of Christ, you can be forgiven and you can walk in the thing that God has intended for your life rather than sit in the misery of unrepentance and unforgiveness and all these places. So I just encourage you, we're about to open the open the table and, and have the Lord's, uh, Lord's Supper right now. I just encourage you right now, whatever that thing is that's gripping your heart, trust God. God is working something in your life and you don't have to try to figure God out. You, just, you can trust a heavenly father. He's good.